Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Susan James, professor of philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London. And she is here to discuss Spinoza on the good embodied life. Susan James, welcome. Thank you. So Benedict Spinoza is one of the most famous philosophers of the early modern era, Could you maybe tell us a bit about who he was and uh, what are some of the topics he wrote about? Sure, I could. Spinoza lived in the middle part of the 17th century. He was born in Amsterdam. His parents were both immigrants from Portugal. They were Jews who came to the Jewish community in Amsterdam, which was one of the freest in Europe at the time. And so Spinoza grew up in the Jewish community there and went to the Jewish school and so forth. But in his early 20s, for reasons that we don't understand very well, but seem to have had something to do with his developing outrageous philosophical views, he was excommunicated from the synagogue. And the herem, or curse, which was pronounced on him was an unusually fierce and adamant one in the context. After this, Spinoza seems to have just abandoned the Jewish community as far as we know and began to live as a sort of independent scholar. He learned Latin, he studied a much wider range of philosophical sources than he had previously done and he learned to grind lenses which was sort of a serious professional and financial occupation for him but at the same time was as it were, a gentlemanly and interesting scientific occupation. This was the era when microscopes were just developing and lens grinding was a very big sort of technological and scientific project. So Spinoza, for example, ground lenses for some of the greatest Dutch scientists of his day, including Huygens. At the same time, he began to write philosophical works. These early works were not published The first work that he published was a study of Descartes' principles of philosophy. Descartes had written his principles of philosophy in a sort of rather informal style, just explaining his points one by one in ordinary prose. But there was a belief in this period that in order to show that something was really certain, you had to put it into what was known as geometrical order. You had to express it in the form used by Euclid in his Elements as a series of proofs and demonstrations. And so Spinoza transforms part of Descartes' principles into geometrical order and also adds some philosophical thoughts of his own, which are where we begin to get a flavour of his own developing metaphysical position. So that work is published and it's important I think that how Spinoza first becomes known is as a Cartesian, a Dutch Cartesian, a follower of Descartes and this is a sort of politically sensitive thing to be in the Netherlands at this time. 
Okay, so that's, as it were, the first thing. The second thing that Spinoza published was a completely different sort of work, which appeared much later in his life in the 1770s, and this was called the Theologico-Political Treatise. And this was a response, I think, to Spinoza's belief that life in the Netherlands was becoming politically more dangerous for people like him, that's to say, for radical philosophers who valued what was called the freedom to philosophize. And so he wrote a book directed against a particular conservative brand of Protestant Calvinism, which was to defend the view that philosophy and theology could coexist with one another without getting in each other's way. The theologians didn't have to worry about radical Cartesian philosophers who were developing views that they regarded as, as it were, not strictly biblical. And the philosophers also didn't have to worry that they were trenching on the territory of the theologians. So this is Spinoza's first political intervention. It's an intervention into his immediate political context, and at the same time it's a defense of the value of living in a free republic, which is the kind of state that Holland, the Netherlands at that time, identified itself as being. The publication of that book caused a bit of a furore because people thought, reasonably enough, this is by ordinary Christian standards a completely heretical position. It holds an extraordinary view of God. And Spinoza begins to develop those views, or rather publishes those views, subsequently in his magnum opus, which is called The Ethics. And this is his greatest philosophical work. It's the work that most philosophers start from. And in that, he sets out a whole philosophical system. I think that the point of the work is to show you how philosophy is valuable as a way of learning to live the best kind of life that humans are capable of living, the happiest, the most rewarding, the most satisfying, the most informed by rational understanding. So in that way, I think Spinoza is a very classical philosopher. He thinks that philosophy is about learning to live well. But there are an awful lot of other things you have to know before you can live well, according to him. And that's what he talks about in the book. So you mentioned that Spinoza was a student of Descartes. Yeah. Um, Descartes famously argued that there were two substances, there were mind and bodies. Spinoza didn't share this view with Descartes, did he? No, he didn't. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting ways in which Spinoza is both a Cartesian and, in this respect, very strongly a post-Cartesian. Because, as you say, whereas Descartes thinks there are these two substances, there are material substances or bodies, which are just lumps of matter that conform to physical laws. And then there are minds located in you and me and every other human being perhaps in angels as well, who knows. And these are immaterial, so we can't, as it were, physically say exactly where they are. They don't have those characteristics. And they are characterized by thinking. Now, Spinoza and many of Descartes' contemporaries are very unhappy with the view that there are these two sorts of substance, for various reasons, but partly because Descartes obviously has a problem in explaining how these two are related. 
how is it that, as it were, your thoughts are attached to your body and your body is attached to your thoughts? And I think that Spinoza's account of the relationship between the body and the mind is designed, among other things, to solve that problem. Now, he takes a completely different view, a view which is very strange, really, and quite hard to understand. But it starts from the idea that your body is a complex body made up of all sorts of parts, which hold together because they sort of move together. As Spinoza says, the parts lie on one another. And one part can be replaced with other parts. That's all fine. But the pattern of motion and rest that makes your body the body it is endures over time, as long as it does endure. So that's what your body is like. And your body inhabits a material world in relation to many, many other bodies on which it depends for its own survival. So those enormously complex sets of relationships are very important for Spinoza. He says, for example, you know, the body needs food and green plants and music and the pleasures, the visual pleasures of the theatre, all these things you need to sort of sustain yourself as the kind of body that you are. But we can add a lot of more mundane things, you know, you need food and shelter and sometimes antibiotics and all sorts of stuff like that. Now then there's the question of where does your mind fit into this? And remember Descartes would have said, well, your mind is just a sort of different substance, a completely separate, identifiable thing. Now here Spinoza says, this is his way of putting it, your mind is the idea of your body. So his thought is this, that here's your body made up of many, many different parts connected to each other. And in your mind, there's an idea of each of those parts, and indeed of each of the relationships between your body and other bodies around you. Your mind, he says, is the idea of your body, just as your body is a big complex material thing, so your mind is a big complex immaterial thing. It is an immaterial thing, it just consists of ideas. But because your mind is the idea of your body, well, clearly it can't exist without your body. So Spinoza says, look, in a way these are the same thing, your mind and your body, but they're the same thing as were viewed from two completely different perspectives. They have quite different and incommensurable sets of properties. Your body has material properties, it's bits of stuff in motion, and your mind consists of thoughts which are linked together by psychological laws which fulfill the same role as the physical laws in the case of your body. Okay, so the driving thought here then is that our bodies are these sort of mechanisms. You can almost imagine a person's body as being like a series of levers and joints or something, almost like a robotic mechanism. The idea is that to each component of this mechanism, there corresponds an idea. What about like involuntary bodily processes like digestion or something? Would, uh, is it part of Spinoza's picture that to each involuntary bodily process there corresponds an unconscious idea? I think it has to be. Spinoza says there is in the mind an idea of everything that happens in the body. 
but clearly he doesn't mean that you're conscious of your digestive processes, or at least not all of them. And so I think it must be true that an idea is something that you can be conscious or unconscious of. And this is also a sort of interesting, to some extent, departure from Cartesianism. I think it's a complex question, actually, in Cartesianism. But setting that aside, it looks as though you're only conscious of and able to work with a very small fragment of the ideas that constitute your mind. So the conscious bit of your mind is a very little bit of it. And I think that Spinoza acknowledges that. He says at one point, we don't know what the body can do. And another way of saying that is, you know, our mind doesn't really capture the whole of our body, as it were. Yeah. So if the body is a, a thing in a world of objects and the body is affected by this world of objects, if there is a correlative something happening in the mind as the body is affected, what exactly, how are we to understand this? What is it like to be affected in this way? Well, and there it's really interesting because you might expect Spinoza to begin by talking about perceptions. You might think, for example, you know, when my body is affected by a large dog, what I get is a perception of a large dog. And Spinoza thinks that's true. But that isn't actually what he's interested in concentrating on. What he's interested in is more the idea of my sort of emotional, as we would say, or affective in his vocabulary, orientation towards this dog. So it's not true that I necessarily have affective or emotional orientations towards everything around me, but let's suppose that how I perceive how this dog affects me is as an idea of a very scary animal. And Spinoza is interested in that sort of response because he thinks, I think, that first of all, that's the kind of beings we are. On the whole, that's the way we respond to the world. So our minds are full of these emotionally loaded, sort of passionate perceptions, as one might call them. And these are the stuff, in Spinoza's view, of the psychological laws that as well, we do our most basic everyday kind of thinking with, what he calls imagining. That's a bit of a confusing term because he doesn't mean just what we mean by imagining. He also means experiencing passions, experiencing sensory perceptions, just seeing things, remembering things, and so on. But all that kind of everyday way of thinking which for him is imagining, is, as it were, fundamentally passionate and thus fundamentally motivating. And so then he's interested in explaining, as it were, how it comes about that, for example, you see this dog and you think, what a lovely animal, and I see it and I think, God, that's terrifying. So his answer is that when we have ideas of the way that things affect us, what we tend to do is to, as it were, think of these as ideas of external things in the way that they are. So I think that what there actually is out there is a really frightening dog. And it is really frightening. And you think, of course, the dog is really friendly. So there's a difference between us. The explanation of the difference lies in the difference between you and me, in the 
physical constitution of our bodies, in our histories, in the way that we've been changed by our experience, and of course in our emotional temperament. I may be emotionally this rather timid person who's frightfully scared of dogs, and you may be this more confident person who tends to view the world positively. So the important thing is that we experience the way that different things affect us as in these passionate perceptions. And as well, that's the basis of our thinking. Those passionate perceptions then motivate us to act. So it's not as in some models of the mind that as it were, we perceive things and then it's kind of up to us, as it were, to think whether we're going to do anything with those, you know, shall we desire this, shall we discard it with disdain or whatever. In Spinoza's view, the basic orientation that you have is to things that you regard as desirable or frightening or things you love, things you hate and so on. So the way that you've described this, it foregrounds how subjective perception is. There is a question, though, it seems like we might want to say that if there were a tiger in the room, a ferocious tiger in the room, and one of us perceived the tiger as ferocious and the other perceived the tiger as a cute, cuddly kitten, the one of us would probably be making a mistake of some sort. There's a sense where we want to say there is something objectively happening in the world, namely there's ferociousness of the tiger. What would Spinoza say in response to this? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that Spinoza thinks that an awful lot of our perceptions are to a greater or lesser extent mistaken. The way he puts this is not so much to say that they're wrong, is that they, I mean for him, error is a sort of lack. It's an absence of some important kind of information or response that one ought to have to such a thing if you really were responding to the world as it fully is. And mainly we're not. But in the particular case of the tiger, what would we say? We might say that the person who thinks it's a cuddly kitten is just awfully unlucky because they've never had any experience of a tiger and nothing in their experience sort of tells them that this isn't like their cat, only a bit bigger. So that might be, as it were, one thing we could say. It's a mistake, certainly, and they'll probably discover that it's a mistake. So there's nothing, as it were, sort of automatically correctly tuned about your perceptions. Although I think that Spinoza does take it for granted that well, we wouldn't survive as the beings that we are, and there's more to be said about that actually, if we weren't, as it were, reasonably well adjusted. But we're partly reasonably well adjusted because we're always acculturated, socialised, and it's through socialisation that we acquire these sort of you know, reasonably sensible orientations to the world. So according to Spinoza, everything we perceive, all of our experiences of the outside world, those experiences themselves are emotionally laden. They have a, a certain an emotional response kind of built into them. You might think then that somebody who's interested in living a good life would want to divest their experiences of that emotional content uh, to be something like objective, moral, reasoners, dispassionate, or something like that. So then the, you know, the goal of somebody who wants to live a good life on this view would be somehow uh, we need to sift out the objectively true or false, non-emotionally laden component of our experience 
and reason about what to do on the basis of that. Was that Spinoza's approach to how to live, or did he take a different approach? <laughs> I think he took a different approach. But in a way, there's something in what you've just said that he's sympathetic to, right? Because what we need to do as philosophers is to come to understand ourselves and the world more completely and better. But he doesn't think that in doing that you, as it were, sift out the emotional side of things. I think he thinks in the first place that because you're a human being, you can never, as it were, overcome the imaginative part of your experience that we just described. After all, things will always be affecting you and you'll always be responding to them. And it will always be true that the way that you respond to them is, at least in part, determined by the psychological laws that run you as a human being and by the particular history and experience that you have. So you can't ever sort of get rid of that. And that's important, I think, for him. You can never get rid of that. But what you can do is, because your body is rather a complex organism and your mind is a similarly complex mind, is to think in a sort of second-order way about your initial ideas, the perceptions that you have of external things and the way they're put together and the habits that you've built up and so forth. And through this kind of reflection, Spinoza thinks, you can come to understand better how you work and that gives you a sort of distance on the sort of being you are and the possibility of arriving at a more objective, as he I think would be quite happy to say, understanding, for example, of what psychological laws are and of what you can do about them, what people can in general hope to do about them to strengthen themselves, as it were. So that now the question would be, is that a matter of becoming objective in the sense of becoming dispassionate? That was really your question. And there, I think, Spinoza will say very firmly, no. What's happening more is that you, as it were, transform your passions because the passionate orientation that you acquire or that is part of you changes as you come to understand yourself differently. So we can take a very simple example. I mean, we've got me and my fear of the dog. And now I come to understand how this fear has arisen. And one thing I come to see is that I'm projecting something which is about the relationship between me and the dog onto the dog. Spinoza thinks this is really one of our deepest habits. And so I'm saying, there's this terrifying dog outside the gate. Well, the first thing I know is that that's not right. There's something about me which is contributing to this fear. So that puts me in a position to reflect about what I'm contributing to this fear and to think about how to deal with that. So I may not be able to change what the dog is like or the way it's affecting me. You know, suppose I can't wave my magic wand and get it to go away. But I can, as it were, come to understand myself differently. And Spinoza also thinks in a way that is interesting too, that that process of coming to understand yourself and the world is an extremely emotional one. It generates great happiness. The business of, as he puts it, empowering yourself through understanding is something that makes you more joyful, more resilient, you know, more kind of outward going in the world.
I see. So Spinoza's proposed method for overcoming our tendency to impute characteristics of the way we perceive objects to those objects themselves isn't to try to purify our experiences of any emotional component, but rather in a way to have kind of more thoughts and experiences which themselves have further emotional content, but which come in to kind of correct the first set of thoughts of experiences or something like that. Something like that, because Spinoza uses this wonderful Aristotelian example of the sun. So here he uses a perceptual example, which is unusual for him. You remember Aristotle says, you know, the sun looks very near, um, although actually we know that it's much farther away than it looks. And Spinoza says, now you know that the sun is actually a long way off, but it doesn't look further off. It still looks just as near as it did before. But you have a different orientation towards this perception. You sort of correct it with your knowledge or you don't let it play the role that it played before in your patterns of inference and thinking and so forth. So I think that Spinoza thinks that the imaginative passion, my original fear of the dog, may not go away. I may still be very frightened of the dog, but I now have a different passion, which is, you know, for example, a desire to live up to my full understanding of the dog or a kind of pleasure that I get in recognizing that my fear of the dog isn't something I have to take very seriously. Our passions are always going to be incredibly mixed, that's important. And if I'm lucky, then I can get that to dominate. But Spinoza is saying, look, you know, passions can only be counted with passions. And it may, of course, be that my fear of the dog, even if I know that I have nothing really to be afraid of in this dog, it's more me than the dog. But Spinoza says, you know, the passion, the fear may be the stronger one. So I may still feel predominantly frightened of the dog. So we've been talking about the body's relation to the mind and how important the body is in life. At first, there seems to be a, a difference between certainly an ascetic tradition and Christianity which emphasizes renouncing the body. Um, Spinoza doesn't seem to have that view, certainly. What exactly is his view with respect to ethics concerning this question of the importance of the body? Well, you're quite right that Spinoza sets his face completely against any tradition which says the good life is something to do with denigrating or renouncing the body. It can't be for him. After all, you are fundamentally embodied. And he thinks in a way that we haven't explained in depth, but he thinks that as it were, the more powerful your mind is, the more powerful your body must be, and vice versa, because remember, they're sort of the same thing. And what happens in one is always reflected in what happens in the other. So if you're going to, as he thinks of it, acquire the kind of empowering knowledge that will allow you to live well, then that's going to be in some way reflected in the empowerment of your body. Now, I think he thinks roughly, along with everybody else in this period, that there are two ways of becoming ethically more resilient, as it were, more capable of living well. And one way you can do it is to change yourself, which in Spinoza's case is going to mean changing both your mind and your body. The other way to do it is to change your environment. You know, put yourself in circumstances where you can do better than otherwise. 
I think it's fair to say that most early modern theorists concentrate on the first of those. They think of becoming virtuous as an individual project that the philosopher has to kind of go away and get on with. And maybe on the mountaintop, maybe in the city, but wherever they do it, it's up to them. And Spinoza is, I think, unusual in being interested in the second question. I think he thinks that becoming virtuous is a fundamentally social or collective project. Because by yourself, you haven't got very much power. I mean, you're just this teeny little thing being affected by other bodies all the time. And being, as it were, there's this great flux of information that's coming into you. And somehow you've got to order it. You won't, I think he thinks that for the most part, people just don't have minds that are up to that task. We're not that sort of creatures. So you've got to get people to help you. And that means that you need to live in circumstances where people cooperate with one another in trying to devise circumstances in which they can pursue a better way of life. Where a better way of life is a way of life that makes them all more powerful and much happier. And Spinoza thinks that that actually will coincide with a conception of the virtuous life of a fairly familiar sort. It will be a life where people live justly and honestly and display most of the familiar virtues. Not the Christian virtues, not, as you were saying, you know, humility and things of that sort. But the Christian virtue of charity in the sense of neighborliness and cooperativeness and harmoniousness, that's going to be essential. So that's what we're trying to do and it's a collective project. And I think this is one of the things that makes Spinoza's ethics really distinctive is that it is a collective project learning to live well. You could think of an example just to sort of give an edge to this. I mean, imagine somebody who finds themselves in a situation where they are subject to a violent neighbor who is more powerful than them and in some ways can diminish their quality of life. And they have to deal with this problem in a way which, as it were, is ethical recognizably ethical. So they could, of course, you know, keep the carving knife in the kitchen drawer to hand or whatever and violently attack this neighbor in return. But Spinoza thinks that would be, as it were, a very short-termist kind of solution, not really an empowering way to deal with the situation because the problem doesn't go away. The insecurity just remains. What we're looking for is kind of long-term solutions which will generate long-term security and long-term harmoniousness if we want to live an ethical life. And so then we find our person, they find themselves in this situation of dependence where there's nothing, there may not be very much that they on their own can do to control their neighbor. But with the help of the people around them, they can construct what Spinoza would see as a kind of collective body which is more powerful than their individual body or anybody else's individual body. And that collective body may be able to deal with the violent neighbor in a way that is mutually enhancing for everyone. I mean, so for Spinoza, I think you can think about ethics in a kind of very bodily way. The question is, how do we constitute collective bodies that have certain sorts of powers to live virtuously, securely, rewardingly, cooperatively, 
which as individuals we don't have. And I think that means that for him ethics is a fundamentally political enterprise, social and political. You know, we may have this little local problem as a group of neighbours, but really that's just a tiny example of the problem we have as a bigger community. For example, say, the inhabitants of a particular state, or in Spinoza's case, the inhabitants of Holland. Now, how do we organise a way of life in which we can empower ourselves further by coming to understand ourselves better and make ourselves more joyful? Susan James, thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. <laughs>